Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, everybody. Episode number 234 is the second part of our third interview with Josh Duffney. If you missed the episode last week, that was episode 233, go back and listen to it. But just as a quick review, Josh talked about lessons learned from an 18-month writing project that he uh, had to kind of uh, set aside. He talked a little bit about self-discovery and managing his energy to get things done, getting lost in his career, and then finally a pivot away from technical writing into something else using the experience that he had and uh, expanding, still basing out from his area of expertise, but into something a little bit different. So today, we are going to hear part two, the second half of that interview. And uh, what are you listening for in this episode? It's really interesting because last week and this week mixed together are a little bit, a little bit like two pieces of the process of unraveling this giant ball of yarn. And it's very interesting how everything links together. This week, Josh is going to tell us what developer relations is. That's kind of a loaded term. We've heard it from different people. So what is it to Josh? What is it at his current employer? And what are the, some of the things that he does now? And how did he use proof of relatable experience to get into that role? So that is really interesting to me. Nice. Yeah, I found that interesting as well. He does kind of answer the question. Well, maybe it's the beginning uh, of an answer, you know, because it's a really complex question. but what if you don't have a developer background and you want to get into developer relations? There's a really interesting, uh, I don't want to say can of worms because it was an interesting conversation that we got out of that. I think I kind of want to flag that area. You know, it's kind of cool, um, his his point of view on that. There's a little bit of a discussion about the uh, cost fallacy with respect to writing. And it wasn't even with respect to setting aside the 18-month writing project. I thought that was interesting. But rather than jawing about this episode and what you're going to hear, why don't we get you straight into it? The second half of our conversation with Josh Duffney, episode 234. When you decided that you wanted to make a change, Josh, was the decision to, oh, I need to make this change, was that a result of someone sharing a specific opportunity with you? 
or was it more you wanted to change and so you were looking for something already that would be different and put you in that new area? For example, developing the back end of those command line tools that you had expertise in before. So the the pivot to to join Microsoft, that was purely opportunistic. You know, it's Microsoft. I've always wanted to work at Microsoft. Here's a chance to jump on ship. Uh, and so that was purely just opportunity-based and a leap of faith. At that. The decision to leave technical writing was the other one where I realized that I wasn't going to be happy in this long term. And the longer I stayed, the more unhappy I was going to become. That was pretty clear to me. Um, and that, you know, nothing against the role or anybody in that role, just my own personal preference and where I saw my career going. And so I was looking for opportunities. And so I was looking a little bit closer. But the, the fun story with this is I accepted the offer for my current role the day before all of the big tech hiring freezes went into play. So like I barely made it in. And as we know now, the market's different than it was for probably my entire career. It's been on this exponential growth tra- trajectory, and now things are tightening up and there aren't as many things out there. So yeah, it's been a bit and been more difficult than it has been in the past just because of economics and stuff like that. But it was definitely a deliberate, deliberate choice to pivot and I was searching. But I didn't exactly know what I was searching for. And so this is, you know, the DevRel was a, a good close fit. And so that was an opportunity in that sense. And when we say DevRel, we mean developer relations. Yes. I yep. know we've had other people on the show who have done that. How do you define it, what it is in your role at Microsoft? Sure. Yeah. Every organization that's different. And I think even the teams inside Microsoft, it's different. But for me, um, what my job looks like is I get to sit between the customer and the product teams and then to be that bridge. So a good point of that yesterday, or was it yesterday, the day before on Twitter, where um, Ravi was um, person that I follow on Twitter was having some issues with the Go SDK. I know the engineers on the Go SDK. And so I was like, hey, engineer from the SDK, his name's Richard why is this behavior this way? Because I don't understand. You know, I kind of gave my two cents. And then they had a conversation. And so that's just a good uh, encapsulation of what my job kind of is, is to sit between community and and product and make sure that they're talking um, and that feedback gets through. Um, But then also to kind of sit a little bit broader above a couple products and put them together. So my talk at Build was a good example of that, where I took several open source projects that Microsoft contributes to, and I stringed them together in kind of an end-to-end story about how to secure your container supply chain. So that was an opportunity or project that I got to work on, which was to showcase all the good work that a bunch of product teams are doing, but also tell a compelling story um, for why those investments are being made in those tools and why they're important tools. Uh, and so that's kind of the two two major things that I get to do in, in DevRel as far as like a practical example, so to speak. And is some of the appeal of a role like that, not only the community facing part, but also the ability to do more speaking engagements? Yeah, that's part of the poll. It was interesting because my hermitness in the 18 months of technical writing, I hadn't spoken in a number of years since actually the 2018 summit, I think, uh, the PowerShell summit. So it'd been like five years since I talked. And then I spoke at Build, which was a big deal, you know, powdering your nose and all that good stuff, (laughs) all that good stuff, makeup crew and whatever. Uh, So that was fun. But yeah, that's part of the appeal. I mean, I do enjoy that. Having gone to Build and being able to do that uh, it is definitely something I enjoy and something I think other people look forward to more than I do necessarily. A lot of people love to travel and it is an excuse for that. My travel will probably be pretty limited. I have you know, young family and stuff like that. And I'm not particularly fond of travel. I don't mind it and I'll do it, but it probably won't be doing anything like Ignite the Tour and flying around every country in the United States in a year. It's not as glamorous as people may think. 
if you have to do it a lot. I mean, I can't say yeah. much. I've never been. Well, it all becomes a job, you know. Can wear you out. Mm-hmm. What city am I in? That's the uh, inevitable question that comes up as you get into the elevator of a Hilton. <laughs> Where am I again? <laughs> or like Josh Fidel did, you wake up and you go, I can't remember what city I'm in or what I'm supposed to do today, why I'm doing this job. Hopefully it's never that bad. Yeah, I can get existential. Fingers crossed. Doing, um, I think, a few things, and especially pre-records and and being very regional can can help. It just depends on the scope of the job and what the expectations are, I suppose. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, inside the scope of my role is is open source contributions. And so I do have it under the job description to to write some code and contribute. For right now, like my current scope is to improve the developer experience for some of those tools, which again, kind of matches the domain because I've been a user of command line tools for a long time. So I know what a good experience is like. And so I can now learn what it takes to implement those good experiences in code. I think reading your Twitter thread, you you had to show that you had a little bit of development chops getting into this, right? Yeah. What what do you do when you don't come from a software development background and you seek to get into something like this? You read and you build. That's what I did. So I've read in the last year probably 10 or so go books and I continue to con- I continue to read go books and then I uh I authored a Pluralsight course on it where I applied a bunch of the knowledge that I uh, learned in those books into a project. The open source community is a great a great place to once you've learned the language and the syntax to start contributing. You know, there's no really any barrier there other than getting approved by maintainers. Uh, and so that's what I've started to do is, you know, I've learned a ton through that. I've also sharpened my skills a little bit on leak code as well. So it's just, you know, reading and practice, you know, time on task kind of thing. How do you decide what open source project to contribute to? There are just so many. To me, it sounds almost like a similar problem of, I don't know which one of these books in my list I want to read because they're all so interesting. You've got to have something that you use, you know, so you find some kind of project that or software that you use uh, and then contribute to theirs. Like for me, had I recognized that I wanted to go on this journey sooner uh, Python would have been a really good pivot because I was really invested in Ansible and it's written in Ansible. And so I could have started to contribute there. Yeah. Or a Terraform, another missed opportunity. So both of those are, are missed opportunities in my career. Had I realized I wanted to move closer, you know, walk the stack, that final step uh, into software development, I could have started contributing to Ansible, could have started contributing to Terraform. Terraform would have been, would have led to Go. And so that's been in the back of my mind, but that ship's kind of sailed. I no longer spend so much time with Terraform. I still use it to spin up demos and stuff, but I'm not in it day in and day out and running an enterprise off of it anymore. So yeah, that would be my advice is pick a project that you use. But pick it through the lens of what it can get you from using it. Yeah. If you can, I'm not saying that everyone always will be able to, if, if you can target something that it could help you step up into that's a it's like a double dip super smart ninja move i've been holding my breath but i guess i'm gonna let it go for uh become terraform (laughs) i guess i I guess i didn't realize that i was holding my breath for it or become go become go (laughs) become go (laughs) well here's a really funny story with that so i very recently i invested probably seven hours into an outline for a go book that I, I filled out an entire Manning uh, proposal 
and I wrote, you know, all the detail that they needed. I scoped out who the audience was. And then I got to the end of it. Uh, and I even, you know, first it was not even going to be a meeting proposal. So there, it's actually on my GitHub right now still. Uh, it's called Effortless Go. I created a book cover for it. I outlined it. I put some commits in there. I was all ready to go. And I spent the time and I looked through the outline. And then I, I pitched the idea to my wife. And so she's a really good sounding board for me. And her immediate reaction was, you know, I took a deep breath and it was like, I don't know. And so I, I pondered and I looked at that and I realized that the only the last two chapters are really something unique that I can contribute. Other authors did a fantastic job of covering the basics of the language and their experience in seasoned programmers and have a lot more experience there and will do a far better job than I can, at least teaching the syntax and the basics. Where I can have a unique stance is showing you how to take that one step further and build a project with it. And so that's kind of what I've been scoping out now is what can I build to have someone that just read a book on Go and learn the syntax and show them how to build something useful with it and give them skills to kind of kickstart and give them confidence that they can pick up project work. Uh, and that's the unique area where I can add some value. But I had, I had a sunk cost and seven hours invested in an outline, but letting that seven hours go is far better than investing the hundreds that it would have taken to see a book across the finish line. Like the idea was to pitch a, a go in a month of lunches uh, was a general idea. But at least in its current form, it's not different enough for me to make hundreds of hours of an investment in that. And so I had to make that hard choice. Um, but what I could do now and what I had on my list to do today <laughs> that I didn't get to, so maybe you two can hold me accountable, was just to record a YouTube video on, hey, I read 10 books on Go. Here's the short path to where I got. Like these three chapters of this book are fantastic. Then read this chapter and then read that. So teaching someone how to read syntopically across multiple resources to scale up quicker. Because a lot of books, they go way too far in depth for the beginner, but they have a really great chapter or another one leaves you with no real application and then leave them at the end of the video saying, you know, go and build this thing um, now that you've read this book. But at least give someone the shortcut. Like if you were to come and ask me, I want to learn Go, I would say read these books in this order. That's the value I can add for the fundamentals. But as far as sinking hundreds of hours into a project, I not only need to crystallize my understanding, I also have to learn in that process. And that process would be to build a project. So I have an idea for a URL shortener that will use a web service and a command line tool. So you see I'm staying close to my domains again, and I'm going to create a, a GitHub project on that. And then there will probably be some kind of a I'll probably reflect on that and refactor it into a training experience once I've gone through building the project myself. I like running it by the wife to to use her as a sounding board. Does she come from a technical background? She has no technical background whatsoever. Although she read like one chapter of my CCNA book and then took the quiz and got a 98%, which infuriated me just because she's got really good retention. But yeah, she doesn't have any technical background at all. So you had to explain a little bit more of the, like, why I'm doing this, who the audience is. and I just said I'm planning on writing a book, and that was enough for her to have a reaction. Oh, wow. Probably because of the experience of the nonfiction that we've been talking about, right? And so there's a little bit of baggage there with that. And what's fascinating now that I decided not to pick up that book, what I've actually done is gone and picked up Reclaim again and edited. Remember, I was talking about that. Yep. And so maybe I needed that space to return to that project. I don't know yet. I would love to see in the repository, instead of me writing this, go read this. Okay. This, yeah, this totally chapter of this book. I've, I've decided not to write this chapter, but you should go read this chapter of this book. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool. Read this, not that. 
I think that's that's super powerful, right? That's a big advantage. Apparently, I assign homework now. That's I, I say it that way, but it's not a new thing, Josh. It's not a new thing. It's a great idea. I love that idea. Because, yeah. well, uh, one thing that I, um, who was it? It was a Joe Hugh. I believe I'm saying his right name, last name, right? Hughes. But he said uh, one thing that he really enjoyed about what I share on Twitter is I get, I share the struggle that I share helps people. And so I think that kind of encapsulates it in the repo. Like, hey, I put seven hours into this. I was going to write it. I decided not to. Here's what you should do instead. That's cool. That's terrific. I think it goes back to kind of, I think, something from, oh my goodness, I'm totally blanking on this book. People want to learn from other people that are going through struggles as opposed to somebody who's already mastered something. And I think that that is a very powerful contextual frame to put around a lesson that you're trying to teach somebody or a a bite of knowledge that you're trying to put out in the world. Avoid sunk costs, because I had seven hours invested, I should just carry it through, right? Not necessarily the case. Sometimes it's better to cut your losses. Right. Or to be honest with yourself, you know, like I had to be really honest with myself to say, right now at my current level, I can't top what already exists. Not being down on myself, just being realistic. And then saying, I'm choosing not to invest the hundreds of future hours into this because it's not something that I uniquely can do, right? And then through that came the idea of something that I can uniquely do. There aren't many books out there or many trainings out there that really help you get started applying the knowledge of Go and applying the language and solving programming problems with it. And so that's where I can be a little bit different. So you've said sunk cost twice now, and it makes me, the first time I was like, okay, I need to ask something. And now I definitely need to ask something. Was that a fear with stopping what you were doing with Reclaim? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huge uh, sunk cost fallacy there. Yep. But yet the the put, the choosing to put something down or maybe not do it or stop doing it actually enabled you to do something else so that you could provide unique value in the case of the Go book, in my mind, it parallels the ability for you to provide unique value back to yourself in editing Reclaim now. It's like a, a parallel meta lesson there. The little maximum that I like to, to talk about that is you, uh, and I learned this with my first declutter, um, which is like getting rid of all optional technology and getting rid of my smartphone. You have to remove things in order to, to miss them enough to want to bring them back. And some things you don't ever want to bring back. Like for example, you know, I don't, sorry, I don't if you're waiting on a Terraform book from me or something like that, but, or maybe you were going to write one, but like the Terraform book probably won't happen, right? Like that, that opportunity's expired in the past and I don't feel, you know, pulled to do that. But in the eight months that I put down Reclaim, it came back. Uh, and so in that, you have to put things down in order for them to, for the desire for them to come back, to be strong enough that you pick them back up. And then I think that's a clear sign that it's something that you should actually do. Right. It was a good idea for me to start. It'll be good enough for me to pick back up. I'm I'm still stuck on effortless Golang, right? Okay. I think maybe what I'm stuck on is this declaration that it is a sunk cost, or which is uh, being abandoned and has no value. Was the outline basically your restructuring of how you wished it was taught to you? Yes. It's interesting my only learning modality is teaching. And so as I go through and I learn and I took all these notes on Go, uh, essentially what the outline was is I pulled up all those notes. So this is a good 
a case for some notes, right? Like I went a little too obsessive, so I'll give yourself some some time and be kind to yourself with your note taking. That's what I'll say. But anyway, I took all these up and I was like, if I were to teach someone else everything I've learned, I would restructure it this way, right? And I ended the book with a couple projects. I restructured how I would talk about pointers and stuff like that and different, I would make sure that I explained and not assumed what control structures were uh, and all these different things. And I had them all in the outline. And so it, it really helped me to crystallize that journey and reassemble it, so to speak, if I were to to teach it to someone else. I'm using sunk cost as a, um, something to deter you away from opportunity costs. So maybe that that's a better one is I'm choosing not to do it because of the opportunity costs of it um, versus the sunk cost. Because the sunk cost, there is some there, but it's not the primary reason that I'm leaving it or that would keep me there. I think the thing with the sunk cost is there was still value in that exercise. So it's not that just because something has a sunk cost that the act of it wasn't valuable. So the act of doing the outline was super valuable and brought a lot of clarity. But moving forward, uh, that manuscript outline will it has a sunk cost to it because it's pulling me to commit to a manuscript. So that's the sunk cost. But the activity of getting it there um, and its creation was actually super valuable and generated clarity. So there's, yeah, it's not that it was completely worthless. It's just that I can't let that seven hours that I invested dictate where I spend the next few hundred hours. It's not a sunk cost if you learn something from the time spent doing the thing. Well, the good example of sunk cost is from uh, Seth Godin where he talks about some kind of a gentleman that has a, a, maybe it's a repair business or something, and he's putting up signs. And I forget the word, but he printed off 300 signs. And it's one of the words is misspelled. And so he points out that makes your business look bad. It makes you look not like a trustworthy business because you have a misspelled word in there. And he's like, well, they're already printed, already spent the money. I'm going to put them up anyway. So he's risking, he's using that sunk cost in the signs to cause even further damage down the road in the, the reputation of his business. Uh, and so that's an example of that. Yeah, that's a good example. I think what you're getting at, it was, it was a good cognitive exercise. Yeah. Right. To say, this is how I think it should be taught. And you're kind of bringing your expertise as an instructor in somebody who's constructed courses before. So I think what I'm hearing you say is like, oh, you know, I don't have the, you know, thousands of hours of, you know, programming go, or maybe even hundreds of hours of specifically teaching, you know, the syntax, the cognitive process of, of coming up with the outline is still an interesting one, because it, I, I don't know, I wonder if you could go back and tease up our patterns and say, well, actually, you know, this is kind of how I learn any language how much of it is you know specific to go yeah there might be an archetype that you could extract from from that yeah yeah okay i'll get off the subject now (laughs) the great questions i actually want to change this subject if i may when seeking to do something new we often seek out mentors you had mentioned this decision tree between leadership track individual contributor track, something different. I mean, in your Twitter post, it talks about something called technical leadership. And I'm curious about where that came into our story, Josh. So that came in my conversation, the Twitter space that I did with Snover, which was which was fantastic. And he mentioned a line. He said, uh, so he was sharing a story about when he was younger and he had some kind of thing wrong with his hands. And so it prevented him from typing a lot. Uh, and so the doctor recommended that he 
switch disciplines. And he's like, well, that's not going to happen. I love technology. You know, it's just the beginning of his career, you know, right in the beginning where technology is taken off. And he's like, there's just no way I'm going to leave this field. And so the, the phrase that he put out there that sparked all of this was being technical without a keyboard. And that just like, it really hit me and it stuck with me after that conversation. And it started to open up uh, my eyes to the technical track beyond management, right? So like once you get to the senior part, it's kind of assumed that you, well, that you go into a manager track and I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to stay technical. And so then you can either stay at the senior level, but if you're at a, a large enough organization, they have what's called staff plus or what, uh, was it uh, Will Larson calls Staff Plus in his staff engineering book? And that's technical leadership, but it's a completely different skill set. Um, you have to have the technical foundation, but then there's all these leadership principles that management typically has. And that's why there's a lot of literature out there for them around just leadership skills, like being able to influence decisions and to, you know, lead with authority and those kinds of things. And so I'm still in the very beginning of what that is, but it was that phrase that Snover said, because he's at the highest point you can get as an individual contributor in the tech industry, you know, and he has been for a number of years. Using him kind of as the North Star a little bit, at least his career, I started to question, like, what's the gap between me and him, right? Not necessarily ex-co-wise, but just at a level, like, what does he do different in a day that I do? Like, how is he still technical? How does he still read stuff about artificial intelligence and influence the technical direction of Google? You know, and how does that differ from what I'm doing? And what are the levels in between? And so I just started to ask those types of question, questions. Uh, and that's what started me down that path. I think it's probably going to be intimidating for most people to try and figure out what question to ask Jeffrey Snover so that you sound somewhat intelligent. How did yeah. the intimidation factor play into just approaching him to have a conversation and preparing for it? Well, I had, I, you know, I've known Jeffrey Snover and I had the opportunity to meet him in person in 2018, but I was too shy. And so I kind of avoided him a little bit and shouldn't have. Um, and so like that conversation was merely just for me to overcome that shyness really and be like, okay, well, I'm going to at least talk to him on a Google or a, a Twitter space. And um, so I had a number of questions just over the years that I wanted to ask. Um, a lot of it came from his talk, uh, Digital Transformations. I was thinking about this in the lens of an elevator job because he talks about an elevator job and .NET was one and then PowerShell was one eventually for him. Uh, and PowerShell was one for me when I learned PowerShell. That's one of the big things that got me uh, to be an S3 at Stack. So I, I just had a lot of questions for him just because I knew of him. But what diffused it a lot was just his his demeanor. He's super friendly, super nice guy, super conversational. And so a lot of that nervousness was really rapidly diffused just with how friendly he was. That's an interesting term, elevator job. I haven't heard that. We need to go link back to that Twitter space conversation. Be sure and send that to us so we can put it in the in the sure. show notes. Well, the, the gist is um, there's these transitions in the tech industry that you can latch onto and skill up in. And then once you have that skill set, those will open the door to what are elevator jobs, right? And so I kind of got on the scripting bandwagon around the time the DevOps movement hit. So the DevOps was a transformation in the tech industry. And so I had the skills or had been developing the skills to do DevOps stuff on Windows, which was pretty niche, super niche. We'll say super niche uh, and do configuration management and all those things. So I was learning the principles, but inside this space of PowerShell and Windows Server and then eventually bled into Linux and stuff like that. So for me, that was an elevator job because it allowed me to pass the stairs of the normal getting promoted every couple of years or whatever it is. Um, I had a unique skill set that the industry wanted um, and I got to capitalize on that. He's got a very, you know, his elevator job is way more like is uh, much more profound. Obviously that got him to 
to distinguish engineer. But yeah, that's the general gist of the elevator job is to being able to see a transition in the industry skill up in that technology that's part of that transition and then, you know, riding that to your next venture. Going up faster than the stairs can take you. Yep. Got it. I was missing the the contrast with walking up the stairs of the, the standard uh, job or climbing the ladder, I guess. What makes technical leadership more interesting to you than the management track? A lot of people say that when you go into management, your output's determined by other people and you're, you're a people manager, right? And so a lot of people will confuse it. And in a smaller shop, you can get away with being technical and then managing people. But in a larger shop, a larger company, your job is the career of other people. And I've just, I don't know if it's, it's selfish or whatever, but I just enjoy the technology more. I just feel like I would be better suited there. You know, and Jeffrey Snover even talked about that in his career path where he did it for a little bit and he realized that he just wasn't doing the people that he managed service because he was more interested in the technology. And so that, I feel like that would repeat if I were to go down that road. You know, maybe in the future I'll, I'll try it and come back or whatever. But right now it definitely feels like I'm, I'm more interested in the technology and want to stay in there. But I do want to learn and apply some leadership, you know, and have broader influence and impact. Uh, and that also gives me at least somewhere to climb from where I am. It's an interesting uh, point of view. I think, you know, as a first-time manager myself, less than 120 days in, I can definitely agree, especially at the very beginning. You know, it's it's more about the people than the technology. I think there, there's probably opportunities to be strategic, to kind of nudge the ship in strategic directions. Like, I, I've definitely come across that where I've said, we're a company that does this. Why aren't we also doing this? And, you know, in an organization, a bunch of eyes and a bunch of opinions, the people who can cogently express one, you know, with data, get listened to a little bit more, especially if they can, you know, frame those strategic directions as, you know, being aligned with kind of company goals. So there's, there's some, there's some of that, but I think what you're saying is, is mostly true. 80% of the time it's, it's about the people who are reporting to the manager in their careers and in helping them to to do their jobs better, not the technology. And I'm also drawing um, an interesting comparison of what it means to be technical, meaning hands at the keyboard or so that's one variant of what t- being technical means. You're, you're building something, you're learning a technology, you're applying it, so forth, or you're programming or coding, what have you. And then there's the other part of technical, which is required, I think, for any leadership role, whether it's an IC or not, which is the ability to apply your technical experience to influence decisions. And that, that's kind of what you're talking about there, John, which is uh, you know, like, I have this experience that I can pull and I can guide this decision with my technical experience, with that foundation of knowledge. And that foundation of knowledge doesn't require as much updating as the hands-on keyboard does. You know, and so that's where you have to make the decision when you move into management or to continue down the IC, is when you go into management, that time to do the hands-on keyboard stuff is going to diminish, but that doesn't mean that your capacity to influence technical decisions would. It'll probably increase because you'll have a bigger scope, you'll be in different rooms, um, and you'll actually be able to exercise that to have broader impact um, than you would at the keyboard. Yeah, especially when you're steering a team, there's the ability to, to ask individual members of the team to investigate different directions, and that's more than any one person can do. Right. So you can say, oh, we're we're approaching a fork in the road. Can can somebody investigate this fork and somebody else investigate this fork? And, 
you report back to the team and then we can kind of collectively make a decision on where we're going. And that's usually more than any single person can do. But I, I think there's the, the force multiplication part of that. But yeah, the, you're right. Because I think the evaluation of that investigation of individual contributors or ICs is is a different skill, right? Because you can get a report back and you know read it and say, oh, well, this person maybe doesn't have context on something else that's going on in this other part of the organization. So with that context, you know, some of this information is recast slightly differently and so on and so forth. So it's something that I'm, I'm thinking about because I'm living it. How does a, a technical person navigate the transition to people manager without giving up technical skills? I, I do have to say, there's a lot of technical skills. It just happens to be about managing people. That's a different set of uh, technical than uh, hands-on keyboard. Most of the people that I report to do not have a, a keyboard that I, you know, I can't access their command lines. They don't have an API. They won't even surrender control on the screen share? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't get elevated privileges. Oh, that's a bummer. You're just a power user. Yeah. Could the could the technical leadership piece be equivalent to more like, I want to succeed, not necessarily through others, but with others and more of them than perhaps if I didn't want to grow in that way. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, Snover as an example, you know, it started as, okay, well, I need to convince Microsoft, this organization to invest in a scripting language. And that leadership bled into the industry and convinced the tech industry that it needed a scripting language for Windows in the beginning. And then that became cross-platform. And so like that's a great example of what leadership is. So, you know, obviously he he wouldn't take full credit for for that, right? He would say there's many people that I had working with me, a lot of people that wrote it, you know, Bruce Payette, one of the primary designers on the language, uh, but Jeffrey had the vision. And so that would be an example of technical leadership. And so I'm exploring it to be like, okay, how do I broaden my impact, right? Both through influencing people to get on board with my ideas, but also like how do I scale uh, myself in a way uh, and then how do I get people uh, or how do I contribute to other people's ideas and bring them together and see a bigger picture? And so really, in, in a nutshell, it's about taking uh, like going up a level and looking around, you know, OK, well, I'm coding the thing and developing it and I'm feature focused essentially as an IC. What do the levels above that look like and how far up do I want to look like how far up looking out is enjoyable for me day to day? I think if I was way too far up right now, that might not be the right move, but one or two levels up probably would be a good way to look, at least from not necessarily status or role, but from a perspective. You know, I can see what my lead's doing. I can see what my skip level's doing. I can see that organization, right? And so this is all the stuff that's starting to come out in the literature of staff engineering um, because there are more of those horizontal, broad, broadly typed engineers um, that sit across many different organizations. And how much time do you spend looking up at those levels versus not looking up at those levels? Yep, exactly. A fine balance. So it's been a fun little, uh, yeah, endeavor. Um, so the, the two books that are influencing my thinking right now are The Staff Engineer by Will Larson and then um, The Staff Engineer's Path. I forget the author's name, um, but that's an O'Reilly book. Both are, are fantastic resources. That's uh, Tanya Riley. Yeah, there we go. Tanya Riley. Yep. Thank you. She, she is a very uh, entertaining writer as well, I will say. 
Uh, I very much enjoy the illustrations that she's had in there. Yeah, it's just a it's a joy to read that book. So anybody that's kind of dabbling or wants to know what's beyond senior, uh, let me pull it up quick because there's a really good quote that she has that I tweeted out the other day about the senior engineer. Oh, here it is. The definition of a senior engineer, the level at which someone can stop advancing and continue their current level of productivity, uh, capability, and output for the rest of their career and still be regrading uh, attribution. Yeah, that's what it is. So essentially someone that, you know, you could stay at the senior and you can progress your technical skills, but your broader impact doesn't need to scale any. You're going to be the SME potentially of a particular thing and you're going to advance and you're going to be compensated well and you can stay at that level and a lot of people can. And so these books, they make you confront that question in the beginning. Staff engineers in a lateral promotion, it's a different track that you're climbing. It's the individual contributor leadership track, you know, versus and it's parallel with management. And so do you want to make that jump? She does a very entertaining job of of highlighting some of the different things, especially around like the organizational tribalism, I suppose. Like she she makes some good jokes about that. But that's one that I'll have to read. I read Will Larson's staff engineer book, but have to add that one to my list. So Will's is really great about uh, what I mostly got of that is how do you get to staff? Like how do you think about your promotion packet? How do you think about visibility? those kinds of things. And then, you know, roughly or roughly like what type of archetypes there are. Hers is really, how do you excel at the role? At least from what I've read so far, I'm maybe a quarter halfway through. Like, how do you excel the role? How do you execute in the role? Um, so I think it's a really good sequel to Staff Engineer. Getting there and then excelling. I really yep. like that. Josh, before we wrap up here, I, I wanted to, to ask this question. Um, are you still using Obsidian on a regular basis or have you 100% uh, transitioned over to MS Loop. <laughs> no, I'm using Obsidian. Yeah, I use the para method in there, mostly for organizing projects. Got it. Cool. I, I suppose people who are listening can't see me smiling while I'm asking that question. <laughs> Big smile on John's face. <laughs> I just wondered, Josh, if someone were to look at the books you read and lay them out along the timeline of each time we've talked, would it actually... I think it would align to the story in some way, shape, or form. Like all, oh, the, totally would. all the topics, the lessons that the books were for. That, that might be a cool exercise to lay out one day. Well, that's the greatest gift you can give an author is to have a part of that book become part of you and to live it out. That's an interesting, uh, maybe an interesting tool that needs to be built where you can lay out an obsidian mind map in your books that you read with cover to cover. <laughs> exactly. It's like... <laughs> Here's these books and, you know, here's the, the things that I live with every day that I've extracted from these books. And then the stuff that, that could be a little bit more. I suppose that needs to be a plug-in, I suppose, inside of Obsidian. Are you going to write that one, John? Or are you still assigning it to other people, assigning homework to others? That's a great question. It's, a, it's an interesting little project now that I think about it, now that I've uh, defined it. I'll have to go in and, and look and see what obsidian plugins are developed in one language i think the biggest uh this has been on my mind for years but the biggest missed opportunity for a lot of these learning platforms is not stealing the skill tree from video games and so imagine <laughs> those books that you could take right and they were just mapped out on a skill tree right and so here's like the meta learning skill tree that josh went on and here's the books that he read and those are the skills right the books become the skills and it's charted out like a skill tree like here's the go, right? And here's where go, uh, the roadmaps are a good example of capitalizing on the idea of a skill tree where they branch it out, start here and you go down and it shows you how to progress, how far you are. Instead, you just get achievements. That's uh, yet another 
map for the way that you could lay out books that have been influential in your life. I like that idea too. Josh Duffney, we look forward to following wherever you go next. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to share. Appreciate it. I really like this idea of getting to the unique value you can provide. So clarifying what that is for Josh, he was trying to figure out what is the unique value I can provide if I write a go book. It reminded me of our discussions with Don Jones, where he talked about what service do you provide to a company? What is your unique value to a future employer? And really Figuring out what that is takes a lot of self-reflection, thoughtfulness, probably some journaling. Uh, Again, it's part of that getting outside of your day-to-day a little bit and thinking through what's happened today, this week, this month, and and is this really what I want to do? Is this really my superpower or is this my differentiator that I personally can bring to this situation that others cannot? I think you can also use this idea of unique value when it comes to open source projects. Josh was telling us, if you want to contribute to an open source project, you should pick something that you use. Maybe you use it at home, like PyHole. I have a PyHole at the house for ad blocking, for example. So maybe I should seek to contribute to that because users of software products have a unique value in contributing to the future of that product because they are using it as opposed to someone who's not, even if the contribution is just to documentation. Yeah, you're talking about people who are also invested in the future mm-hmm. and progression, right? Sure. But yeah, I think that that's a, a really cool point of view. Josh was talking about writing a book, especially when you talked about um, outlining a go book and then deciding to, to set it aside. You know, that's where this issue of some cost came in. And it was, you know, do you invest thousands of hours because you've already invested seven? You know, maybe not. And I thought that what he mentioned that I, I still cannot let go of, right, which, which was, hey, you know, I don't know that I could write a chapter on topic X better than this other chapter that was already written. And it just made me want Josh Stephanie's guide to navigating which go books to read for which which topics you're trying to learn, right? Read the intro to this book and then chapter one of this book and then, you know, oh, you're you want to do data structures and go, then you need to go to this book. I would just love to see that. It would be interesting to look at something like that from someone like Josh and then line it up with, okay, does that fit the way I would want to learn it and can absorb it in my brain? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But I love the pulling pieces of value from different sources to give somebody a learning plan. And in this case, maybe the unique value is I've read these 10 books while trying to learn this topic from the point of view of a beginner in the language. So now you don't have to read them all and then make a decision. Here's my point of view on which you should read and and to cover which topic. Right. Let me help you get up to speed in the most efficient way possible.
That makes sense. I remember hearing from, I think it was Chris Wall, said that comparison is the thief of joy. And we heard a little bit about Josh in certain ways comparing himself to Jeffrey Snover. But it wasn't a, why don't I have what he has, whatever, wealth, fame, whatever it is. It was really looking at Snover's career and the skills that he has obtained as a, almost as a progression path. How can I fill in the gaps in the skills that I either need to hone or acquire to get to a level where someone like a Jeffrey Snover is? Because that seems like something that's really interesting to me. It doesn't mean that I'm just desperately unhappy with myself because I am not that now. It's more like I look up to this person and that sounds like something that I would want to do. How can I get myself there learning from them? It's not the kind of comparison that you're talking about when you see people post on social media, oh, my life is so great, hashtag blessed. You know, that's not that's <laughs> what we're talking about here. Right. It's kind of, you know, what lessons can I learn? And, you know, obviously there's a skill gap, a performance gap between myself and that person. But what have they you know, that that wasn't always the case. Like, you know, that person in the past was, you know, approximately where I am. And then what step do they go to to build up, you know, as you said. So that's not a path that I can teach somebody, but I'm trying to like use somebody else's experience to teach myself, you know, in the same way that I was kind of looking at him to show the path on go. Mm -hmm. And he is actually like pretty open about that kind of thing. Like even in the first half of the conversation, in episode 233, he was very open about saying like, hey, you know, I'm not, you know, as prolific a writer as Don Jones, for example. Sure. But like, you know, Don Jones has been doing it for, you know, X years and has honed his process. Like, and, and that's not where I'm at. So, you know, it's, it's it's not worthwhile to say, oh, oh, woe is me. Why can't I perform like some of the highest performers in the industry? Yeah. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the work. You have to learn how to perfect your processes. Yes, yes. Or make them better. Improve your processes. Improve. Yeah, yeah. Constant cycle of improvement that we've always talked about. I thought that there were some really valuable book recommendations that he made. Staff Engineer, which I had heard of and, you know, have a copy of. And then The Staff Engineer's Path, which was, you know, brand new to me. And that actually reminds me, last week he mentioned ultra learning. And I don't think that that bubbled into our intros and outros of that episode. But, you know, there's another book to go uh, take a look at. It's, you know, the, the Josh Duffney learning path, right? Always charting and mapping into the unknown and, and looking at next steps to, you know, improve oneself and, and help others do that same thing. What an amazing guy. Yeah. If you look at the, look back on the episodes or listen back to the episodes, we're just following his progression path from the first couple episodes to the second set of episodes and now to this set of episodes. And there are different lessons in each one that we can each learn from. So it's, it's kind of cool because our style is more long form interviews with people to get more of that story. And it's fun to see where people go from here. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. 
Farewell listeners, tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman, for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Josh, thanks so much for, for being on the Nerd Journey again. Third time uh, guest, rarefied air. It's it's not that rarefied. I'm sorry. I'll expect my uh, t-shirt, you know, <laughs> sometime soon. You know, we did have t-shirts made, but uh, they didn't. Oh, did you? Oh, cool. It didn't hold up. Like the design didn't stick well. Oh, it just ripped off? Yeah. Well, we probably need our polos. We just have to have enough of an order for them to not be like $4,000 each or something like that yeah some uh nike dry fit uh, nerd journey i don't know i'm not sure that i would wear it so <laughs> i don't know if i'd ask somebody else to <laughs>